This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. This week, we have a very exciting guest, Ben Teitelbaum, who is a professor of ethnomusicology at the University of Colorado and has hung out with Steve Bannon a whole bunch. So a lot. Um, how that works, we're going to find out. Okay, um, we are very excited to have our guest on today. Uh, Benjamin Teitelbaum is Associate Professor of Ethnomusicology and International Affairs at University of Colorado Boulder. His research focuses on ideology and expressive culture in contemporary radical nationalist, populist, and neo-fascist movements. Um, and he's on to discuss his most recent book today, which is War for Eternity, uh, the Return of Traditionalism and the Rise of the Popular Right, which was published in 2020 um, by HarperCollins, Penguin, and um, another press, Campinas Press in Portuguese. Uh, so, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be with you, Amit. All right. So, um, while it's the Russian invasion of Ukraine that led us to inviting you on in order to talk about a man named Alexander Dugan, um, his ideas and his influence. I think before we get to that, it might be useful to kind of zoom out a little bit. Um, your book is really a must read for anyone wanting to understand the ideological connections of what is an increasingly global right. Um, and I think there is a lot of explanatory power in this book of why these very seemingly disparate countries like you know Brazil, Hungary, the US, Russia have made a hard tilt to the right. Um, I'd, I'd actually also be interested to know what your thoughts about the tilt to the right in India as well, because there's there's those connections there as well. Um, but before getting to that, you know, the subtitle of your book mentions this word traditionalism. And so could we start with a working definition of that term and it's, you know, the ideological origins of the school of thought? Traditionalism, it sounds very benign. Um, and it's not, uh, you have to think about this first. The only clue that you get that this is something other than traditionalism, as you might know, the term colloquially is to, is to at least see on paper that it's always spelled with a capital T. This is a, um, a, a spiritual and religious school prior and in, in, instead of being a political school, first and foremost, at least those are, those are its origins. It emerges among circles of Orientalist philosophers, and I mean that in the pejorative term, but also the historical term, uh, in in late nineteenth uh, late nineteenth century France um, and Western Europe. And it at the the core of its claim is a, is a narrative of history and of humanity um, that that asserts that once upon a time, ages ago, in a time that we really we really can't identify. Uh, religious truths and insights, the ultimate, the ultimate accurate truths of, of ourselves and our world were known to humanity. Uh, they existed not as some of the, one of the named religions we know today, but instead as the tradition. And that it didn't need to be written down. This is sometime prior to writing in the, in the minds of these traditionalists. And uh, as time went on, however, that tradition, those religious insights were forgotten. This writing is one of the early signs that it was forgotten when, when kind of oral and oral culture didn't keep those insights alive through conversation. So you had to write it to record so as not to forget. And, but um, it, its insights were also fragmented throughout the world and they began to exist only in 
and piecemeal bastardized forms in in a number of different religions. And it is the, the task of the traditionalist to kind of recreate that now disintegrated truth and create a, a more a more understand the the integrated truth that used to be there. Um, so I, I could go on quite a bit about that, but but here here are a couple ideas uh, from that that ended up mattering to politics and which ultimately made their way into politics. There there are three of them as I see it. One of them is the idea of cyclic time, uh, the notion that instead of history proceeding linearly from a beginning to an end or a beginning to some destination. Uh, instead, human history has been cycling through various ages, a golden to a silver to a bronze to a dark, typically in that cycle, after which a cataclysmic event resets the cycle in a golden age. Uh, in, inherent in that idea are a couple things I would just flag. One is that that cycle is typically one of degradation and decline. Um, it you, you don't proceed from dark darkness to light, from darkness to golden. Um, instead, it's the reverse. And so it's a, it's a pseudo-pessimistic view of, of the passage of time in human history. Another uh, idea with that is that no, no one is really going to progress or develop. Um, instead, we're constantly in a process of being something, departing from that being, and then returning to it. Um, what you are is what you have been. What you will become is what you were. Um, all of those, all of those concepts are, are wrapped in this um, in this conception of cyclic time. Um, buried in it also is 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 a celebration of of destruction almost and decline itself, uh, uh, an apocalyptica. Uh, that really the only way you get back to a golden age is through darkness and the destruction that it will ulti ultimately be its culmination. So that that notion of cyclic time is is deeper and more far reaching in its connotations than than we might we might appreciate. Other parallel concepts uh, that come out of traditionalism are uh, a belief in caste hierarchy um, and in, in the values that that caste hierarchy represents. We, we can see this. It's going to be most familiar to people, anyone who's studied Hinduism, to think about the Hindu caste system. Uh, traditionalists believe that, that was a, the Hindu caste system is a sort of holdover and trace remnant of the older ancient tradition. And... Um, Inherent in that principle, this ordering of different castes that we see in India, is uh, the celebration of the valuation of spirituality on top of materialism, spiritual pursuits on top of, let's say, economics or bodily gratification, the celebration of quality over quantity. Um, later on, traditionalists would start to, what should we say, accentuate and sometimes fabricate meanings in that caste hierarchy that are not always observed by all Hindus. Among them, the notion that the priestly caste at the top of the hierarchy is Aryan and that the lower castes are non-Aryan in some sense, that they are masculinist in their dispositions opposite a feminine disposition of the lower castes. But also key to this is their belief that in a society where caste hierarchy reigns, separation between groups boundaries between castes and boundaries as a sort of abstract phenomena writ large reign. Um, and that can be elaborated, developed to, to mean national boundaries, boundaries between genders, sexes, boundaries between races, uh, ethnicities, tribes, everything. Opposite uh, a, a dark age, uh, a different order where caste hierarchy has, has declined and boundaries of all kinds have disintegrated as we turn to an order of quantity, 
of feminine values, of non-Aryan uh, particularism, and of uh, of a materialistic world order. Um, so, so that's that's wrapped into this. And if you heard from my description, this the the time cycle does interact with uh, with this with this hierarchical uh, understanding of society. The final thing that I would say, attendant to all of that, is traditionalists uh, tend to look at modernity at our own age as having been an age when uh, that that coincides with the dark age. They see that because of the reign of democracy and communism, uh, which are both materialistic in a sense in, in their primary concerns and also quantitative in the way that they want to assign and delegate political power. Um, they look at feminism. They look at mass migration, mixing of different peoples. They look at secularization. They look at universalisms of, of modernity. It's progressivism. It's belief that we can make a meaningfully better world tomorrow than has ever existed in the past. Um, all of those things uh, in their mind fit into this, this religious worldview, but they also think that in our age, you see an age of what they call inversion, where um, there might indeed be priests, there might even be warriors or other kind of uh, icons or ambassadors of castes in our world. But uh, in this particular dark age, none of them are really going to be any of those things. They're probably going to be the opposite of it, or simply costumed versions of, of a lower a lower caste ideal. So what, what that ends up meaning is that if you see someone who is, let's say, a professor like me, my, my goal is to teach, and my, my office in society is to teach and educate. Since it's the dark age, you should actually expect that I'm doing the opposite of that. I'm probably spreading ignorance and stupidity. Um, if there's a doctor, their their office says that they should make people healthy and well. They're probably hurting people. Um, a military general is supposed to protect uh, the safety of, of their country. They're probably doing the opposite. Media is misinforming. Pol politicians are misrepresenting. Um, all of those, you know, priests are, are, are spreading spiritual nonsense rather than, rather than truth. Um, all of those things lead to this full-scale rejection of, of the establishment of, of officialdom in, in the West. So that's a bit of an introduction. It's, it's, it's hard to give a crash course for such a complex and wide-reaching um, uh, philosophy as this, um, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah, thank you. That, that's really useful and helpful. I mean, I think one of the things that came up for me as I was reading your book um, as you describe it, and in your book, for those who haven't read it, and everybody should, um, you speak with some remarkable people, Steve Bannon, Alexander Dugan, uh, Carvalho of, of, of uh, Brazil. Um, and these are sort of hyperactive people, um, that they're very much engaged in the world. And what I found a real dissonance between the worldview and the idea of why do anything, right? You know, that if if there is a sort of apocalyptic cyclical time um, and no matter what you do, you know, the dark age will end um, and there might, you know, there, there will be some destroyer that finally destroys it and then you will get the golden age again. Um, why, why is it so hard to meet Steve Bannon? Why isn't he just like sitting on a beach doing nothing, <laughs> right? Like, like if it's all faded. <laughs> right. Uh, this this is a key kind of dividing line among people, let's say on the right, who follow traditionalism today. Is there a place for activism? And is there such a thing as an agent, an individual agent who can who can shape in any way or interact with these grand cosmic time cycles? Can I give you a, a quick foray into history? Please do. 
So the figure who took what were really religious and spiritual teachings into politics was, was uh, an Italian named Julius Evola, who was active before and after, you know, in the years around World War II. And uh, he, he also saw, you know, believed that, that the Dark Age was modernity and that there was actually potential to escape liberalism and, and modernism in all its forms that were, um, that were, were sweeping across Europe. His initial belief was that you might actually, if you work hard enough, you might be able to reverse the time cycle I was telling you about. Specifically, he saw in, in Italy leading up to World War II, he saw a society that, that was moving from a sort of mercantilist um, kleptocracy into either communism or democracy, into what, what traditionalism in his mind was, was, was uh, prophesizing as, as you know, democracy, communism, as, as an age of, of the masses and materialism. And then all of a sudden you got Hitler and Mussolini um, who interested this figure, Evola, in part because of their racism and, and their reactionaryism, but also because of their aesthetics, because they dressed themselves like warriors and they created sort of military states, which to him signaled a, a, a sort of backward march out of a Bronze Age to a Silver Age, from an age of a merchant to an age of a warrior. The last age going backwards would be a golden age of a priest. And so this, this figure, Julius Evola, during World War II was working very hard in ways that eventually just annoyed and weirded out the Nazis uh, to, to turn Nazism and fascism uh, transfer it from merely being a military state into also having a theological dimension to turn Hitler and Mussolini from soldiers into priests. And he thought, well, if we do this, what we will have done with, with just incredible audacity is to have reversed time, to have gotten to a golden age without having to go through a dark age first. Um, the war, war ends, of course, that all, that all is wrong. He ends up interpreting that those hopes as being just just a, a quick flash of optimism, a sort of revival performance of an earlier age en route to deeper darkness. And and liberalism sweeps over over Europe and the world. We eventually find our way to the end of history and Evola says, no, the only the only thing for a traditionalist to do at this point is to quote, ride the tiger, is to simply wait for liberalism to die like an organism, like any others. Just say, keep yourself safe, don't confront the tiger of modernity face on instead find a way to to make yourself inconspicuous and in time itself time's elapse is going to be your actual your actual weapon that liberalism can't fight against that has been the principle for a lot of right-wing traditionalists um it it has been I, i'm a music scholar in part and so i love to study the fact that a lot of their the music associated with this world in contrast with kind of crude neo-nazism sometimes doesn't even have words. There's a lot of la, 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 do, 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 um, vocable singing, nonsense syllables in, the, in their words because they just there's no need to propagandize. There's no need to evangelize. There's no need for activism. There's just a need to celebrate the passing of time, maybe even ornament it and, and treat it as an object of aesthetic contemplation. But then we get to Bannon and Dugan and, and these figures that we see today who are not, it's not just that they're activists, they're hyper activists. They have initiatives, they have wild ambitions. And, and how does this work? Um, part of the reason is that they're hypocrites like the rest of us, but there is an ideological justification for it too. Um, there, 
there is a branch of traditionalism following uh, someone named Savitri Devi, who was a, a woman, actually a, a sort of ally of, of the Axis powers during World War II, um, who moved to India. Um, we know that she was consuming the texts of early, early traditionalists. And she believed, she came up with a theory that really, really powerful men, and they were seemed to always be men throughout history, were actually able, they weren't able to reverse the time cycle in the way that Julius Evola thought, but they were able to advance it quickly. They were able to spin through time, accelerate its elapse in, in ways that other people did not. The way that they did this, according to her, was by trafficking and spending the actual capital of time more quickly. What I mean by that is people who destroyed more efficiently and on grander scales than other people. Because remember, this time cycle is about moving toward darkness. So it's essentially about destruction, and destruction is what will eventually liberate you and put you back from and back into a golden age. So figures, I mean, Genghis Khan was one. Um, in in a, in a different way, she thought Adolf Hitler was one. If you look her up in a encyclopedia, I think she'll be listed as an esoteric Hitlerist. Maybe the only person I've ever heard of <laughs> getting that that notable moniker. But she thought she thought. Um, Hitler could do this via destruction and, and that there were, there were certain figures who understood their role in history, um, knew that they had to destroy in order to, in order to create something new. And there were other figures who simply destroyed for, for the heck of it. When I spoke with Bannon and I write about this in my book, he refers multiple times to, uh, to concepts that come out of Savitri Devi's teaching. And then he also went on in other cases to not only describe Donald Trump as having that exact feature, um, as she describes some people, as being a destroyer who doesn't really need to understand his role, but just a, a, a destructive force that was going to destroy on such a large scale that it would actually have an eschatological impact. He would actually be moving the cosmos in a way through his destruction. Um, he described him that way, and then in one instance, he described him also as a man in time, which was the specific word that comes from Devi. So I think for these... These traditionalists, there, there, there are ideological, theological justifications they can draw on to say that, okay, they actually have, if they're ambitious enough, if they're special enough, they can actually do something. So another long explanation, I'm sorry, <laughs> but, uh, but, but no, this no, is no, all no, part, that's, of, that's great. part of the world of thinking um, here. Yeah, so the, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up uh, Davy because that was actually the next question I was going to ask you. Um, because she's sort of a, a flourish on the temporal theory um, that you described earlier, right? There's just a sort of permutation yes. of it. Um, and, and one thing that, I don't know, I just, I just find sort of absolutely fascinating um, about, about this book and, and, and this whole school of thought that is apparently just sort of subterranean and, 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 and there's all these sort of global connections and conferences and stuff like that um, is that, I, I still struggle with the idea of how um, workaday politics, right? That the sort of the quotidian politics um, of managing a campaign, right? That's, uh, that Steve uh, Bannon's able to do and he's able to do, you know, as you describe his Cambridge Analytica stuff and Brexit and all that kind of, all, all, all that sort of thing, right? Um, that with the timescales that, are potentially being thought about. Um, it just it seems incoherent, uh -huh. right? Um, and and I and I wonder do, do 
and I, I don't know if you can answer this or not, but, but do you think somebody like Bannon, somebody like Dugan, who are acting in the world are, are themselves, um, thinking of themselves as, um, men in time, so to speak, um, that they, that they are, they are these types of people, um, or are they just sort of conscious that, well, we could maybe try to urge some things along, but you know, then that's the sort of best we can do. But as, as you sort of, um, there's a great line in that one chapter on, on time, which is <laughs> time is violence, right? right? Right. So that, that it's just the unfolding of time itself is going to be, um, socially transformative. Yes. Yes. I, I, I don't want to suggest that coherence is there. Um, and okay. uh, be, because, yeah. because again, people can hold beliefs and they can recruit from their ideological world to justify their actions selectively. And I think we all do that, right? I think we have ideals, we have our behaviors, we have practical necessity and and those things are always imperfectly aligned with each other in the actual lives that we live. Um, but, but for them, yes, I think that, you know, for, for Bannon who let's say looks at the European union, looks at globalism, looks at China, looks at the United Nations, the WHO, all of these large transnational homogenizing entities in the world that, that again, can, can fit fairly nicely into a traditionalist worldview that says our age is the age of mass homogenization, leveling, unification, and so on, borderlessness. Um, I think he wants to destroy those entities, and his motivations can be maybe various, but it certainly is a... Is a, is a an additional motivating factor to say, guess, you know, guess what? I can, uh, you know, the, the currents of time are somewhat on my side here. And, and I can also, I, I can trust that if I destroy something large, a new structure and a better structure is going to emerge in its place almost automatically. There's in, in all of the figures that I've I've studied and who are inspired or affiliated with this this way of thinking, Steve Bannon, Alexander Dugan, Olavo de Cavalho in, in Brazil, there's much more emphasis on destruction, on opposition, on negation, rather than creation. And in underlying that, I think, is 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 just a faith that creation will happen on its own and that improvement will, will right. follow destruction. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's fatalistic. Uh, <laughs> it's like it's like a, a faint-hearted fatalism, right? <laughs> it's it, you can you can it's not quite full, but yeah. Um, okay, Tony, why don't you jump in here? I'm sure yeah. you're not. Um, okay, so one is a quick one. Does a guy like Steve Bannon or Dugan do they do they consider themselves traditionalists? Do they actively refer to themselves as this, or, or is this something? You, we've labeled them based on their actions. Uh, they do selectively. So Bannon, for example, would say, "I'm a traditionalist in this sense," and you know, you could call me a traditionalist in this way. Uh, Dugan will has gone through various various periods of time where he says, "Yes, absolutely, I'm a traditionalist," and and he's gone on. I mean, he's tried to found schools it, in the name of and, and paying tribute to uh, traditionalists, traditionalism's patriarch, uh, Rene Guénon. Um, the one person who who doesn't do that was Olavo de Cavalho, the the Brazilian. Um, although he's ironically the one who was also initiated formally into traditionalist 
collective. So. Um, okay. So what's in it for a guy like Steve Bannon? We'll concentrate on him just because I think most of our listeners will be super familiar yes. with him. What's his end? What is his end goal here? Is it like, does he consider himself like a prophet of traditionalism to help, you know, broker the cause or, you know what I mean? Certainly, he certainly is not interested in evangelizing for it. He doesn't talk about his traditional, it it seemed to have slipped out a couple times in his official political assignments and it just freaked out everybody who was around him. This is one of the reasons that it seems Jared Kushner you know, really accelerated his push to get Bannon out of the White House. I heard Bannon saying, the stuff that's happening in Syria, you know, we're living in an age of darkness. This is just going to be, this is just our fate. And Kushner was like, this guy's crazy. Um, So it's, it's not that it's not that he wants to spread these ideas. Um, I, I think he's committed to the idea that they are true though. Um, If you look at his biography, Ben Shapiro, you know, does this line quite a bit. You, you can read Bannon's biography as being just a series of gimmicks and as, and as Bannon sort of being a leech that, le- you know, that jumps from host to host and as soon as they start to die, then he jumps to someone else. Um, and there's, there's no principle, there's no commitment to him really other than his own political advance. That's, that's a, a, a way of looking at him. And there's, there's evidence for that in, in most ways except for this stuff. He has been interested, his, his interest um, and his involvement with what we could call variously alternative spirituality, especially that which crosses into the anti-modern, anti-liberal world, that has been consistent in his life for decades. That has, that has been the one thing <laughs> that, that makes me say, uh, no, you can't say that. You can't just call him a dilettante. Um, and, and so, so to me that, 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 what does that say? It says, it says that there is some genuine conviction here that, that he found something that explains, uh, what he sees in history and also, also guides him as, as he acts. So, so I, all of that is to say, I don't think we should exclusively look for strategy here. Look at traditional as just a means to an end for him. I think it has a deeper significance. Got it. So he, so he sees a, a candidate like Donald Trump come in and this is the ultimate candidate for traditionalists because he isn't quite Donald Trump's impulsive. He doesn't quite have any, any real philosophy. It's just disaster. It's chaos. It's, uh, you know, go against the grain, go against the norm. And for a traditionalist, this is a perfect setting for, launching it out into the world. He's a large scale comprehensive destroyer. And Ban even put it in those very terms to me. And then he, and then once he kind of corrected himself, well disruptor, I mean. Um, I think he realized that destroyer <laughs> might have you know might not, not come across so well in a in, in an interview with me. But that was it. And you know, it's the depth that the the expansive terrain that Donald Trump was was confronting. You know, it wasn't the Democrats, it wasn't the media, it wasn't the Republican Party establishment, it wasn't political correctness, it was everything. It was the world order, it was the United States federal government, it was all of yeah. our, our multilateral alliances. Um, to find someone who had no allegiance to them was 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 perfect. The only thing, you know, Bannon's real complaints about Trump were that he didn't destroy and disrupt to the extent that he could have. 
he wasn't quite right. heavy-handed enough. That was that. That's that's the regret for Bannon. That's what has made Trump the imperfect instrument. I don't think he would care about his crudeness in any other way, except for how ineffectual he was actually at being a destroyer. So he must love uh, some of the new candidates that are starting to rise in the <laughs> the GOP. The uh, 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 the wacko from Texas, uh, Green. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh my God, I, I, yeah. I try not to remember other names, but there's four or five of them right now that are on a new level of bizarre. Oh, oh Green from from um, Georgia. That, yes, absolutely. Yeah, Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Marjorie. Yeah. Uh, so, so this must be for someone like Bannon. This is this is great news that some of these candidates are rising. He he's also excited, and and there may be reason for for his enthusiasm here to to see the younger generations of the GOP because that has become a reservoir also for MAGA movement, uh, conservatism that is not it is not liberal conservatism that is we're not used to hearing those terms in the United States, but it is not a right that is primarily interested in deregulation, individual freedom, capitalism, which he doesn't think is a meaningful opposition to leftism. He wants to see the populist, nationalist, anti-liberal, deeply anti-liberal conservative right. And that, that could be coming in younger generations. And this is, um, you could jump back and read this. And, and this yeah. is different from being an anarchist in what way? <laughs> um, I think you have to look at the, uh, you, you asked about the end goals here. It seems to me right. for both, let's say, an anarchist and, and a libertarian that, yes, they too want, you know, states' rights and they want to destroy the federal government. They might not like these multilateral international organizations and whatnot. Um but at the end of their campaign, at the end of their story, if they were to write a perfect perfect future, um, I think that you end up with something a little bit more anarchy, um, in, the, in the mold of anarchy. Got it. Whereas for a traditionalist, I think that after destruction, you end up with a new social order. That is, it, it might be smaller in scale, but it's, it's, it's no less um, organized and managed and structured in society. Um, than than what we have right now. It's it's a it's a theocracy. Alexander Dugan, for example, says really that his ideal state in the world is not some you know libertarian individualistic paradise. It's Iran, yeah. right? It is a theocracy. Um, maybe it, it manages it, its boundaries more, but that's it's when you get to that stage following destruction that we see that that the libertarian anarchists and the traditionalists are actually not not in any long term alignment with. Got it. Would there be, sorry, I'm at last one. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Would yeah. there be any correlation between like ancient Egypt societies and traditionalism in that, you know, like, a, like it sounds, it seems to me like they want to be pharaohs. Like this is, mm-hmm. you know, they, there's this, there are these like elements of spirituality and destruction and this, I, these, these ages, but really in the end, it's like the power going to very specific people and controlling um, which kind of like when I, I was reading um, kind of your piece on Steve Bannon the other day, and I was just thinking that it, it feels a little ancient Egypt. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because both Savitri Devi and Julius Evola have written uh, about Egypt. I, I mean, in, in my reading, or at least this morning, I feel like Savitri Devi does, does so a little, a little yeah, more, yeah. but it's, it's, you know, it's not just the structural hierarchical elitist nature of the society. There, there are even some of the intangibles there, sun worship, 
is is right. deemed also a principle right. of Brahman priestly caste behavior opposite a materialist that looks down to the ground and worships soil, right? So yeah, there, there's there's a lot of depth there. Some of the things you just said, uh, Ben, about um, the destruction, it, I think it puts into stark relief the sort of persistent complaints by the Trump administration on the deep state, mm-hmm. you know, because the, the deep state is being resistant <laughs> to, to, to its own destruction, right? And, and that they're, you know, they try as you might, you know, American foreign policy officials are going to chug along, even if you try to hollow it out. Um, you know, the, the sort of the, the myth um, of American foreign policy is that, you know, it changes that much from administration to administration right. <laughs> is, is that it's basically consistent. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, they like highlight a few things that they want to do yes. more. Um, and, and that's precisely because of this, this sort of permanent government that's yes. there. Right. And, 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 you know, that's going to be the enemy for a destroyer, right? Like that, that hence this deep state has become uh, a rallying cry for the right. Right. It, it's, it, it fits here in the belief that, that really what determines the character of our political life, our cultural life is, is some deeper current. Um, and that all of the, all of the diversity that you see in social life, all the oppositions that you see are actually illusory and that they're all kind of just doing a dance around each other, but they're, they're wearing costumes in the same sense that a priest is not going to be religious or that a, a military general is not actually defending. So too are the non-liberals, the, the right, the political right, actually just wearing a sort of costume, but they're knowingly or unknowingly p- participating in perpetuating this, uh, th- this underlying current of consistency. And, and you really can't do anything to, to, to move it. You know, for some traditionalists, or some, I, I should rather say for some of the more, the more intellectually um, engaged sectors of the radical right, the way to deal with that has not been through mass destruction or anything like that. It's been to try and get the deep current, which in their mind is, is, is a matter of culture. And therefore, you shouldn't be involved in politics necessarily. You need to try and alter understandings of common sense in society. And, mm-hmm. and after that, these political... Uh, these political behaviors that that are really just afterthoughts and byproducts of culture will start will start to realign, um, and that's 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 been the effort there. But it, one wonders that you know, in the case of Bannon or or any of these other other figures, if they will end up in the same place as Julius Evola did, who say that this populist wave that that really seemed slightly stronger just a couple of years earlier than it does right now, um, was this just a kind of flash in the pan moment? echo to a to a previous era that is then going to pass and they're going to have to resign themselves also to riding the tiger to sitting on the beach and doing nothing right right we'll find out in november (laughs) (laughs) honestly november's looking pretty crazy have you um it's looking crazy have you um you know I, i would assume writing a book like this spending this much time with 
you know, characters that some would would consider bad guys. Um, what has the the uh, I guess has there been blowback? Has there been have there been people upset with you for spending this much time with people like this? Because of course, you know, we always have to make something out of everything. So there's got to be people like, how could you write about yes. this? Yes, a, a, a lot actually. <laughs> and it, it, did, it didn't start with this project. I mean, I'm, I'm an ethnographer, so I, I really believe if you're writing about living yeah. people, the questions that I'm interested in addressing necessitate that you spend a lot of time with them, that you don't just do formalized interviews. Of course. That's just not, it, it, it's just not going to give give me information that I'm interested in. So you get to know these people. You build trust. That trust has to be real. Um, and the primary thrust of my work is, is really not, at least, Initially, it's not to criticize them. It's not to develop a more devastating takedown. It's to know what they actually think and how that relates to the lives that they live. After the fact, I, I'm totally okay, of course, if that supports a more informed criticism in response to them. That's that's great, but that can't that latter part can't can't come first. One hundred percent. And yep. and so um, so that's a challenge. It's it's hard. There, we feel like we're at war. I think a lot a lot of the world with these figures. And this is not the time for chin stroking and for pondering and understanding and understanding has this sort of relativistic connotation of, well, the world, this is all just a misunderstanding. Everyone has good ideas. So I, I can find myself um, in, in those, those crosshairs. Uh, it doesn't motivate me, as you can tell, probably from that lead in, it doesn't motivate me to, to change. I'm not, I'm not convinced that, um, Everyone has to be doing opinion journalism on these figures. I don't think that we right. need more of that. I don't think we need more heat. I think we need more more light in some cases. And and I just can't I can't imagine that a criticism is gonna gonna have a long shelf life is gonna really matter if its characterizations of of our of, of its ideological opponents are faulty, and if there's something that's missing there. So that's that's a big part. I can talk about this a lot, but that's the, those are some of the basics right. as, as to why I I'm, I'm very happy even to receive some of that criticism as comfortable as uncomfortable as it is. Sometimes I would I would rather be criticized by some of those voices than not. Sure. Yeah, it's it's a bizarre criticism, really. I mean, I, I understand where yeah. it's coming from, and it's kind of like um, very timely, episodic political motivations. Um, but, but really, I mean, if you follow the logic of that criticism, we shouldn't understand Nazi ideology, right? Uh, right. Lest people understand, you know, think we're sympathetic with the Nazis or something like that. You know, it, it's, it's, it's so, I mean, what I really love about this book is that you take them seriously, right? That <laughs> no matter how outlandish some of the shit is, because some of it is pretty crazy, <laughs> but, but, um, but, but you take them seriously, right? And, and um, that they have a sort of body of thought and a system of references that I've never, I've never really never heard of before. Um, and this is what they're working with. This is, this is their way into the world. Right. right? Um, and that's, you know, it's, I mean, from my reading, very troubling, <laughs> you know, yeah. like a lot of where, where this can go is extremely troubling, but it's also revelatory. And one thing that, you know, this made me think of as I was reading your book, actually, is that so there's, you know, the the political thinker, the Nazi jurist, um, Carl Schmitt, who made the argument that all political concepts are descended from religious concepts. Um, and it seems that 
you know, what their end game is, is that just to sort of cut out the middleman of politics and get back to just the religion, right? Because right? it's really just spirituality should be sort of governing life, yes. right? That, you know, the soul comes first, the body is secondary, and, 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 that sh- and that's, that's what we're sort of uh, aiming for. I wanted to sort of maybe wrap up by by um, getting to the person um, that that um, I really wanted to talk about today with you, which is Alexander Dugan. Um, so, you know, as I was rereading some of Putin's speeches after reading your book, I noticed this word multipolarity come up a, a couple of times, um, and that is a Dugan word. And 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 so I'm wondering if you could sort of sketch out his, you know, view of Russia in the world in its sort of world historical purpose and, um, you know, how, how big it should be and all that sort of thing. Um, and do you think that the current invasion of the Ukraine is not solely, but is partially um, been influenced by Dugan's traditionalist thinking? So Dugan, Dugan looks at that traditionalist opposition between modernity and tradition that we were talking about earlier and says, guess what? This manifests in in contemporary geopolitics as well with the West led by the United States representing modernity and it's, and it's universalizing homogenizing spread across the globe and Eurasia led by Russia, partially by China, maybe with Iran, maybe with Turkey, um, uh, occupying instead an antithesis to that. And therefore, if you are a crusader against modernity and for tradition, then you need to support the Russian state in, in, in its aims to push back against the United States. Um, that's, that's been his, his basic claim is to cast and you know, add, add a sort of spiritual narrative to what might otherwise simply be a, a sort of dry, secular, realpolitik uh, uh, sort of conflict between the United States and, and Russia between just two, you know, two power centers is to say that, oh, there's deeper meaning to this, to this war. So that's, that's what, what Dugan has been pushing. Um, he also believes that you know, Russian tradition and Eurasian tradition is by definition not actually globalizing. And not expansionist beyond beyond the area where it has a right to be, which is not the current political boundaries of Russia. <laughs> note, take a note of that. Um, but what that means is, in his mind, if if liberalism, if Russia stops liberalism in one place, if it permanently stops the advance of liberalism, let's say in Georgia or in the Donbas, it means that liberalism has a fatal blow to it, whereas the inverse is not true. If liberalism's destiny, the destiny it has given itself, is to universalize, to be the truth for every human being on this planet, stop it in one place and it has failed, right? Um, so so he, he sees a sort of grand significance to, to even a small-scale uh, military conflict with the United States and, and a lot of, of points to be won but, uh, following a victory. Um, so when he... Uh, after the you know in, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the late 1990s, as Russia is struggling to to envision a new role for itself in this post-Soviet world, he publishes a book called Foundations of Geopolitics, which saves a lot of the mysticism and the occultist stuff, and simply talks about Russia's mandate to expand and how it will do it, and how the the opposition between the West and Russia is 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 deeper. 
um, than some people realize. That book was sponsored by and ultimately ended up being consumed by a lot of Russia's military elite. It remains to this day um, Dugan's most tangible piece of impact, I, I think, on Russian policy. And he's not the only one, and there are people who love to you know, say that, oh, this guy's irrelevant. Um, I was on MSNBC yesterday, actually kind of having this, this banter with another, another academic. But um, he, he ends up being more than just a philosopher, though. Thanks to his writing, thanks to the formulations that he gave um, in, in his early texts, he, he operates as a sort of pseudo-diplomat of the Russian state, as a political operative. He turns up in, in the early 2000s, U.S. intelligence believed that Putin was sending him to Turkey. And by the time we get to the crisis in 2015 between Russia, Syria, and Turkey, when, when Turkey shot down a Russian fighter pilot, you might remember that episode, um, it turns out, if we are to believe the words of the, of the former Turkish minister of, of, of military intelligence, that Alexander Dugan, um, this philosopher, ends up playing a material role in the negotiations between these states, back-channeling back between uh, officials to resolve their conflict. Um, his goal in all of these instances, he, he's been in Iran as well, he's been in Pakistan quite a bit, his goal is to try and create networks, agreements, communication channels, and partnerships uh, out in the world that will exclude the United States, that show the rest of the world uniting and starting to operate independently of Washington's influence. Um, a, a, Again, a deeper goal of that is establishing boundaries. If it's done through military action, that's one thing, but it's also of saying you know, to the United States, guess what, Syria, Turkey, Russia, you have no business here. This is our part of the world, and you don't get to spread here. So he's done those things. When we look at, at Ukraine, we see his influence both in the characterization of it and Russia's nationalisms. To say that Ukraine is a modern recent phenomena is to say that it is invalid. Right, and there, and and that's an honor. I, you don't need capital T traditionalism to do that, but it certainly doesn't hurt uh, to say that what matters about these people is not their contemporary political boundaries, is not their economic aspirations, it's not even their popular will. This Enlightenment era, uh, you know, reason-based understanding of, of of political righteousness. Instead, it is their deeper identity. They are Russians. They are wayward Russians. They are spiritual brethren. They are cultural, ethnic brethren of Russia. That's reason enough for them to be reincorporated into the Russian civilization. Um, so he has deeper, deeper arguments like that. He um, has been involved on the ground in in Georgia and Ukraine, um, saying that that Russia needs to go assert itself right now and as strongly and as as, as possible against what he sees not as Ukrainian independence, but as just the United States and liberalism, um, and and some of his more more let's say overzealous expressions of that in the past got him in trouble. In 2014, he he seemed to say would express what people thought was a sort of call to genocide in eastern Ukraine that any Ukrainian speaker, you had Ukrainian identified person needed to be killed, um, and he ended up losing his job at Moscow State University for that. Um, for those. Today, as, as we look at this conflict, he's again serving a function, in, I think in more limited channels. He's, he's not been in Russian media as much as he was in the previous, in 2008 or 2014. He's been serving a more limited function in, in his own more devout uh, circles by adding narrative to this conflict, by saying what we're seeing in Ukraine is not the opposition of states, it's the opposition of tradition versus modernity, order versus chaos, 
um, security versus uh, unsafety, uh, all all of the, all of those things, truth versus decadence, um, and adding adding more purpose to the war. I would I would also add, um, if Russia loses this conflict, um, Dugan might not be that depressed because one of the one of the outcomes of the sanctions that we're seeing is a more isolated Russia. Russia cut off from this global world of circulation of goods and money and people. And if that were the result, even or the outcome of, of economic decline and a military defeat, I think I think Dugan would be more than happy to take it. That is a Russia that is bounded, a Russia whose boundary whose whose borders, national borders matter in deeper ways than they did before. A Russia who is a sort of island and a Russia that's more Russian. I think all of those things are are very exciting to him. So so a, 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 a fascinating figure to follow this whole conflict through, I would say. He's it, it, This whole philosophy is so bizarre to me because it's basically like take one part multiculturalism and diversity speak um, and then add hierarchy <laughs> <laughs> and then spin it around in the time cycle. <laughs> right. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's because, I don't know, there's... What's interesting, after reading this book, my political reaction to your book was that the left, um, such that it is in this country and and, and abroad, um, also has their own fatalism. Um, and that is can be politically suicidal. Um, that I often hear that, oh, you know, when Trump came to power, look, we just have to wait for this older generation of racists to die off. And, you know, it's and thing time will take care of it <laughs> their own sort of apathy right? you know? so so i don't know you know what, what you're describing that the, there's a historian famous historian christopher latch uh, controversial in some circles but one thing he said about progressivism was that it creates a sort of inverse mirror image flaw of nostalgia um, if nostalgia is so dangerous can be dangerous because it refuses to make use of history um, progressivism is the inverse because it, it refuses to make use of the future. It just presumes that the future is there and is good. And, and you really just have to, right. you know, the, the, the tide, the wave of, of history and progress is going to wash over all of the outliers among, amongst us are just going to be, you know, they'll be dispersed and, and, you know, we'll send them a, a courteous right. farewell, but they're gone. The future is ours. Um, and th there is, there's a laziness to it. There's an apathy. Um, that yeah. that is that yeah. is misplaced and and arrogant as well. We shouldn't you know stop to stop to say that there, there's a there's a, a profound proclamation of your righteousness <laughs> when you're when you're thinking in those terms, right? Yeah, right. Uh, very little indication that you might be wrong about something ever, which is which has never happened as far as I know. So. Right. All right. Well, we are coming up on time, so um, we could talk to you all day. There's, we just scratched the surface of this book, so our listeners should uh, definitely read this book. There's mm -hmm. so much in there. I just can't believe you met all these people, <laughs> spent all this time with them. Be like, I don't know. I know you described that how, um, you know, they basically you're seen as non-threatening because you're into music. Yes. Right. You know, that, that, that as an ethnomusicologist, it gives you the kind of access that you wouldn't have had. Were you a political scientist or a historian or, you know, a card carrying journalist or something like that. Right. right? 
that they're just like, oh, this is kind of fluffy and this guy will just hang out and we'll talk. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'd, I'd like to hope as well. I, I try to never ask a question um, that I'm not sincerely interested in or ask a question that, it, mm. it, it, you know, that I don't already think I have the answer to. Um, so some of, some of, some of those things probably help as well. My curiosity is genuine. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, we need to also, you know, I know right now you're kind of doing the book circuit, but when you're done, we want to have you back on to talk music. Oh, I'd love to guys. It'd be a pleasure. Yeah. 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 Amit, Amit and I are, Amit and I are, are music nerds and there's plenty yeah. of stuff yeah. for us to and talk I'm about. Way. Yeah. I'd love to. Family of musicians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Ben, thank you so much. Um, again, the book is War for Eternity, Ben Teitelbaum. Everybody should read it. We'll put it up put on, on the website. our website. Um, and thank you so much. My, my, thank my you, thanks ben. to both of you. Pleasure to be with you. traditionalists yeah i mean okay people should read this book because it's kind of mind-bending when i was reading this book i was it, i was trying to understand how people actually believe this um because you know as you know as i talked about it's like it's incoherent it just it's not coherent um but you know uh, ben had a great response is that a lot of our thoughts and the things we hold aren't coherent, but, but really this, some of the stuff in here is, is pretty, uh, yeah. batty. Mm -hmm. Um, but it also happens to occupy the brains of some of the most powerful people yep. and influential people on earth, um, which makes it all the more relevant and, and scary. But anyway, um, a lot of the stuff we talked about and, you know, Ben is so well-spoken, um, and sophisticated in, in his thought, um, that should not scare people away from his book because it's a book that you could literally read in a night. Yep. Um, and because it's, you know, it's beautifully written, it's written almost like journalistically, you're kind of following him around the world, going to these different meetings and, you know, the way he narrates it is really gripping. So, um, I can't say, uh, enough good things about even just not even the content, but the form itself. Yep. Well, that'll be up on the website. Yeah. Um, you know, share it, read the book. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll keep paying attention. We should have him back on talk music though. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Uh, no politics at the dinner table is produced by Amr Prakash, uh, tunes by G. Baderoy, theme song by Alex Tepper. Um, as always, please log on our website. You can see all our past episodes book recommendations all of our guests work on there um and you can write us a note if you want us to interview somebody or you have a question you know we, we would love that so feel free to jump on there and do that and um we'll see you next week see you next week